Morning, everyone. Great to see you all. We doing good? Yeah, good, good. Uh, let's open our Bibles to John chapter 2. While you're turning there, is Jessica Lee, where are you? Is she here? She's downstairs? Okay, darn. Well, uh, you know, this time of year we're doing a lot of budget stuff, and uh, for our financial assistant, Jessica, it's a lot, and uh, I just wanted to thank her. So I'd love to be able to like look her in there. I see her kids there, but um, Jessica does a fantastic job for us, and we just appreciate all that she does, um, not only um, doing the bare minimum, but doing everything with excellence, uh, with godly character. Uh, she's been such a blessing stepping into that role, and she's also doing uh, a lot with our women's ministry, taking on the ministry Come As You Are. Many of you have uh, been to that, and she just does a fantastic job. So I just want to thank her. And even though she's not here, can we just clap for her? Thank you, Jessica. Okay, let's read. I have to get there too. John chapter 2, 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Father, um, I'm aware that as we get to this time of year, there are many hearts that just feel discouraged, feel burdened, feel worn down, feel weary, um, or just a sense of uh, even depression that can come as we get into the winter months and uh, the holidays is not a happy time for everyone. And so, uh, Lord, I, I just, on behalf of those hearts and those people, I lift them up, and I ask for your grace. I ask that you would encourage them with the good news of the gospel. I ask that you'd bring friends alongside them to, to bless and encourage them. I ask that they would not lose heart or lose hope, but they would be filled with your spirit and turn to the word of God for consolation and come to you in prayer with their laments and their struggles, knowing that you love them and you care for them and you love to bear the burdens that they carry. May we as a church be sensitive to each other that there are different 
days and seasons where each of us goes through struggles. Each of us is discouraged at, at different times and may, as the body of Christ, we feel that, sense that, and move toward each other. Not mainly with advice or, well, I, I did this and this helped me, but with understanding and a listening ear and prayer and love and time and energy. Lord, if we are all doing that for one another, what a difference it would make in each of our lives, um, especially in the hard times. And I pray for those who, when they have those struggles, that they would not stay isolated, that they would reach out as hard as that can be, just to ask for prayer, just to ask for a friend. So, Lord, it's such good news when we come to a passage like this where we see that your intent and your heart is to give us life, is to encourage us, is to bless us. And yes, we walk through this valley of tears, but we are going somewhere. The kingdom has come. It is coming, and it will come. Encourage us today. Encourage us today that you love us and you are for us, and from heaven you came and sought us. Your bride, your beloved, your treasured possession, the apple of your eye, your people. Help me now, Lord, by your Spirit, to preach Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today we come to Jesus' first miracle. Recorded only here in the Gospel of John, and I am, for one, fascinated by this text. <laughs> it is so interesting to me. Uh, I have so many questions, and uh, it, it, I love and, and appreciate it. I'm so thankful that it's my job all week to study this, pray over it, and share it with you. I get to do that. That's amazing. Here's the big idea of water into wine. In His coming... Jesus does not bring more rules to follow. He brings life to enjoy. In his coming, Jesus does not mainly bring more rules to follow. He brings life in the deepest sense to enjoy. The Jewish system of rules and laws, it's not bad per se. God instituted it, but it has served its purpose. No more of that symbolized in the water jars. A new kingdom, a new covenant has come filled with joy and freedom and blessing received through faith in Christ alone, symbolized in wine. That's the big idea. I was talking with my kids this week. We were reading Leviticus 16. I'm sure most of you don't need me to tell you what's in Leviticus 16. You know. You know, don't you? You were in your devotions there a couple of times at least this week obviously. I'm reading about the Day of Atonement, all the rules for the Day of Atonement, everything that has to happen. So the priest, to go into the Holy of Holies, he has to take a bath. Then he has to put on certain clothes. And then he has to get, you know, a bull for his own sins and a goat for the sins of the people. And, and, and then he has to, you know, kill one of them, but not the other and take the blood and splatter it seven times. And I'm reading this to the kids and they're like, that's a lot of rules. I don't think I'd want to be a priest. I feel like I'd forget one. And then I would die. Like interspersed in the narrative, so that they don't die multiple times. 
And yeah, don't write the directions on your hand because you're standing in front of the Ark of the Covenant. You're probably going to be sweating. Okay, what was that again? I can't read it anymore. Do I tie the sash in the front or the back? I can't. The turban goes this way or this way? Praise God, we don't have to live like that anymore. Because Jesus has obeyed every single law. You read through the Old Testament, it is exhausting how much they had to do. Every single day, the law intruding on your life. And Jesus Christ comes and fulfills the law of Moses, born under the law of Moses. And not only that, he is the lamb. He went under the knife. He went into the Holy of Holies in the heavenly temple and went under the knife for you. He was the goat sent into the wilderness to wander alone with the sins of God's people transferred to him symbolically by the priest going like this. This is what he did for you so that you don't have to live like this anymore. Turning water into wine is a parable, a living parable of the old covenant giving way to a new and better covenant. Your relationship with God is not based on keeping rules. It is based on the merit of Jesus Christ alone. It is not a covenant of works. It is a covenant of grace. Do you ever think about that? What a blessing that is. For every Israelite, this, just, just being in God's, among God's people, in God's country, in God's land, this was the most tedious job you've ever had. Some of you have had very tedious jobs. It's just imposing, just, just I have to do this, do that, do that all day long, all day long, again and again and again. It's very tedious. That was what life was like for them. You had to be focused all the time. Dietary laws, purity laws, sacrificial laws. And if you got one wrong, you were messing with the living God. You were in trouble. I mean, God is a merciful boss, but in this dispensation, in this covenant, He's not playing around. Just hammering you. Every day, you are a sinner. You cannot draw near to God. You need a Savior. And now, we are free from all of it. And we just get to focus on loving people, serving people, worshiping God, enjoying God, without fear, without pressure, without anxiety. Who needs to hear that today? Who's stressed? Who's anxious? Who's fearful? Who feels pressure? This is why Jesus came, to give you, to give you generously the gift of, no, I did all the work. I did it for you. I obeyed the most stringent of laws, God's laws, perfection is expected. So that you could take a deep breath, say thank you, and then go enjoy your freedom. Love me and love others. 
amazing. <laughs> and it's hard for us because we weren't there. We didn't experience that. But, man, it's like you wish you could for just a day or something, a week, and then experience what you have in Christ and just feel that contrast because it's a lot. This is what Jesus is inviting us into at Cana. Water into wine, an old covenant giving way to a new covenant. So here's what I want to do. I want to walk through the passage. I'll explain it. And then we'll finish with some implications and application. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we have a wedding. Both Jesus and his mother are invited to. Very likely, this is a family member or a close friend. For, for both of them and his disciples to come. We don't know for sure, but it could be Mary's on the serving team. She's responsible on the groom's side for making sure things are going well. Everybody has what they need. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So I could hear the tone in that one. A little frustrated. In Jewish culture... In an honor-shame culture, running out of wine at a wedding is a major embarrassment. You do not let this happen. Some of you had dry weddings. There are no dry weddings here. Okay, this is just expected. This is normal. This is part of the party. Um, and it could go on for several days. It could go on for a week. And you could actually get sued as the groom if you did not treat the bride's family appropriately. So Mary is concerned. She has good reason to be concerned. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So interesting. What does this mean? What is going on? Mary <clears throat> seeks out Jesus as her oldest son. She comes to her oldest son. She says, I need help. I don't know what to do. We're out of wine. Now, given that Joseph, Jesus' father, does not appear in any of the gospel accounts after uh, Jesus in the temple, you remember when they're trying to find him in the temple? We don't hear about Joseph other than that, any later in Jesus' life. So it very well could be he has died. And Mary is a widow and she is depending on her oldest son. She's grown dependent on Jesus. Um, which, I mean, you understand, this is not a bad person to have around, is it? If Jesus was your oldest son, you might be tempted to ask him for advice on pretty much everything. Okay, not only is he a great carpenter, he's the son of God. Okay, so wives, you have a handy husband uh, you, you're always asking them to do things. Could you help me with this? Could you do that? Just imagine that and that they're also Jesus. This is what, did I make that weird? Is that weird? Maybe I did. That's fine. She was a little more like Jesus. This is what it's like, I think, for Mary and Jesus' family members. Okay, you have someone who's not only skilled in their profession, their craft, they're just wise. So she comes to Jesus as her oldest son, and says, hey, I need your help. And Jesus says, no. <laughs> no. He's not rude, but he's firm. I, I, I'm not going to do that. 
woman. Now, this sounds like very harsh. <clears throat> One of our kids the other day um, finished a plate and handed it to uh, Carrie and just handed it to her and said, here, woman. It was a good moment. We felt good as parents. Um, you know, you have those special times you feel encouraged. But this is more, it's not rude. It's more like um, if you're from the South and you say ma'am to everyone or to, you know, to women, you just say you know, ma'am, hello ma'am. It's more like that. Uh, not like a yes ma'am, my mother. Jesus is not um, treating her uh, in kind of a submissive way as his mother, but it's a general term of respect. And so basically he's saying, mom, this doesn't concern me. You can't use the fact that I'm your son to draw me into something that it's not my responsibility. Which is amazing. No human being, not even Mary, can use Jesus for their own purposes. Um, it's hard to stand up to your mother. Amen? Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. It's probably really hard to stand up to Mary. And yet, it is the Father's will that controls Jesus. It is the Father's will that guides him and controls him and moves him and, and, and directs his every decision. So he does decide to help, but on his own terms. I don't think turning 150 gallons of water into wine is what Mary had in mind when she came up to him. Probably something like, where can we find some more wine? Or could you come talk to people and explain what happened? But that's what Jesus has in mind. And she responds well. She trusts him. She lets go of her agenda. Okay, you know, I, I trust you. Whatever you decide is fine. So while Mary comes as his mother, she leaves in faith. It's a really amazing exchange. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw, out, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. This is sort of like the, the, the wedding coordinator, whoever's responsible. So they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, said to him, <clears throat> Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. Now, the word there, drunk freely, is more like become drunk. Uh, the NIV translates it, had too much to drink. So we know this is alcoholic wine. Um, and it's interesting, the fact that people are drinking does not keep Jesus away. He's there. He went. He's mixing it up. But you have kept the good wine until now. Come back to that. Why are the Jewish purity jars filled to the brim? Why, why that detail? The time of the Old Covenant is full. It is passing away. It's over. Why turn water to wine? Jesus could have turned it into anything. He could have done goat's milk. Why wine? Why did you choose that? It's fitting. The properties, the nature of wine is fitting. It's festive. It tastes good. In the Bible, it's a sign of blessing. It's, it's very fitting for the kingdom of God coming. Why so much wine? 
I mean, you could have done just a little bit, you know, to get them through the end of the party. Why so much? Well, it's, a, it's a, an abundant kingdom. It's not a stingy kingdom. It's not just enough. It's not just the minimum. It's more than you can imagine. Why the best wine? Well, first to prove it's a miracle because you don't break out, out the good stuff at the end of the party. You do that at the beginning. And at the end, you give them the cheap stuff. But Jesus is showing, I am the Son of God. I, I'm bringing out the best. Secondly, to illustrate that Jesus himself is better than anything and everything. To know him is not to have a cheap glass of wine. It's to have the best. It's to have the best. See, all the details, guys, it's, it's important. It means something. There's no accidents about what was recorded or what Jesus did. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And his disciples believed in him. So, I would say some of you today and some of you certainly have been raised to believe that Christianity is about taking things away. Taking the good things away. How many of you, I just, I want to see a show of hands, have you ever run into that or were raised on that idea that really to be a Christian means you don't have fun? You don't really enjoy life. Let's, let's see. How many of you have encountered that? Okay, I would put my hand up. So, I mean, a, a fair amount. This is a lie. This is a lie. The only things that God asks you to give up when you become a Christian are the things that ruin your life. That's it. And then he says, here, have everything that will make your life happy. And beautiful and good and enjoyable, not only now, for eternity. That's Christianity. But every movie, every TV show, every, you know, legalistic church out there will tell you, no, it's about saying no, no, no. It's about don't do that. Don't have fun. Don't smile. We're just talking to someone last night where they, they grew up in doctrinally a good church, but... The, the phrase that they used was that, was that joy seemed like a crime. Illegal to smile. Illegal to actually enjoy being in church because the culture it was. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be reverent. Absolutely. Absolutely. Approach God with reverence and awe. But this is a kingdom of life. This is a kingdom of joy. If you meet a Christian who doesn't have any joy... That's a concern. So I, the narrative that, that God is about just saying no and, you know, no fun, no joy, no laughter, just kind of a monastic, monk-like existence where you just do religious things every day, that's another religion, folks. That is not Christianity. And if you're not a Christian, what God is inviting you into is something so good and so sweet you can't imagine it. You would know that your sins are forgiven. You'd know that you are loved and accepted and approved of by your Creator. Not based on anything you did or can undo, 
but on the finished work of Jesus Christ, that He obeyed in your place, that He died in your place to give you life. We have to reject that. We have to reject that 100%. And you say, well, what about, is there any laws? Is there any, you know, the things we, we're not supposed to do? Yeah, because He loved me so much that softens my heart to trust Him and to believe His wisdom that when He says, here's a fence, don't go past that, I should listen. Because He loves me. He's proven He, lo- he loves me. He died for you. Why wouldn't you trust him if he says, this isn't good for you? So when you talk to people, this is what we have to emphasize. Because what everyone has heard is that God is watching you like a hawk with a microscope. And anytime you slipped up, he's going to slap your wrist. And that's what Christianity is. It's a lie. Okay, first sermon over, second sermon. Implications, applications. That's the main point. That's the big idea of the passage. Let's get into some application. Okay, I'm going to say one word, and I want you to pay attention to your immediate gut emotional reaction. Alcohol. Someone... You might want to just spend a few weeks with that child at college before you leave. Just stay, watch over him a little bit. At least we didn't get a hoorah from an adult. I'll take that as a victory. Just the word is very emotional. We respond to the idea of alcohol with a lot of emotion. It brings up history. It brings up maybe some happy memories. It brings up maybe some really terrible memories. Um, For some of you, your association with wine or alcohol is very negative, and there's good reason for that. Your father drank heavily, beat your mother, beat you. Your mother drank heavily, um, yelled at you, screamed at you, treated you terribly. I could go down the list, maybe tried to kill you. Uh, Someone close to you has absolutely ruined their life because of abuse of alcohol. Sin terribly against you, against others, hurts you. Uh, Some of you have personally walked through the horrors of addiction, and it is a horror. Um, I'm thankful to know some of those stories as I look out at you. It's just maybe a very painful subject for some of you, and that makes total sense. Of course. (laughs) Of course it would be if what has happened to you or what you have done had happened to anyone. Abuse of alcohol is a huge problem. I see it in counseling all the time. Uh, Nobody gets smarter or more godly when they drink too much. It's just never happened once, ever So I want to talk through this subject with a huge amount of empathy and compassion for those situations. They are real, they are painful, and 
there's no easy answer. There's no easy solution to them. They're complex. What I want to do is lead us into a biblical understanding of alcohol. I think you guys know me by now. Um, I want you to be Bible people, mainly. That's it. It's not my opinion. It's God's opinion. It's not my preference. It's God's word. I want you to have a biblical understanding of, of everything that the Bible speaks to. And maybe you say, um, you know, why are you bringing this up, Pastor? This is weird. Because here it is in the passage. Here we are, Jesus creating miraculously a lot of wine for people to drink. And I'm guessing a few of those people at least did not partake in a godly manner. Sinned with the wine that Jesus literally gave them. How do we process that? How do we think through that? Being biblical means holding two truths at the same time. Wine, alcohol is good. Created by God. Wine, alcohol can be abused by sinners. We have to hold those two truths because the Bible holds those two truths. Created good, abused by sinners. Scripture bears that out. Wine was part of Israel's life with God. It was normal. Deuteronomy 14.26 gives Israel permission to partake. When you arrive, you may use the money to buy any kind of food you want. Cattle, sheep, goats, wine, or other alcoholic drink. Then feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and celebrate with your household. This was normal. Deuteronomy 7.13 promises wine as one of the blessings for coming into the land. One of the blessings of obedience. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, so children, and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil. God also gives us wine just to make us happy. It's an extra. Psalm 104.14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. So God just gives these gifts. He's just generous. Now there are examples of those who abstain in the Bible, but they are more the exception than the rule. Uh, Daniel had a specific reason. John the Baptist, very clear command, don't, don't drink. Jesus drank. Jesus drank regularly. Uh, you don't get accused of being a glutton if you never eat. You don't get accused of being a drunkard, which he was accused of, if you never drink. This was normal. This was, yeah. He more than likely drank here at the wedding. It would have been rude not to, probably. Um, this was just part of life. Did Jesus ever get drunk? No. Like us in every way, yet without sin. Never went too far. Never had one too many. Some of you have heard it argued that wine in the ancient world is non-alcoholic. Um, I've heard that argument, and it's just false. If you do the research, if you read the scholarship, in its undiluted form, wine in the ancient world was between 5 and 10% ABV. So less strong than our wine today 
for sure. And then often they would dilute it with water. So it would end up something like a light beer in our day. If you have five, you're going to feel it. That was typical in their day. We also know it was alcoholic because in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns the Corinthians, stop getting drunk when you take the Lord's Supper. So if the wine that they're using to take the Lord's Supper is non-alcoholic, why does he have to tell them, don't get drunk? And it's interesting, he doesn't say, what are you doing using wine in the Lord's Supper? Stop doing that. He says, don't abuse it. Don't, just don't abuse it. At the Last Supper, when Jesus says, uh, fruit of the vine, uses that phrase, um, it does not refer to non-alcoholic, unfermented wine. That was just a common phrase in their day. Everyone would understand that he's talking about wine, fermented alcoholic wine. Like we might say a glass of vino or for a beer, give me a brew or you know, a pint. It was just a common phrase that, that everyone understood. Okay, they knew what he meant. Paul is very concerned with people forbidding things that God does not forbid, like marriage, like food, like alcohol. God doesn't forbid it. You better not forbid it. That's, that's bad. And in 1 Timothy 4, he says this in response, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And Paul also says, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Habitually abusing alcohol leads to damnation. It's very serious. Don't play around with it. Both truths. Both truths. God holds them both. The Bible holds them both. And I understand that for some of you, this kind of positive language in the Bible about alcohol makes you uncomfortable. There's probably good reason for that. We all have those verses that make us uncomfortable, don't we? In the Bible, we all have them for ourselves. I have my own, where I just kind of want to be like, boop, skip past it. Or, boop, I don't think it really means that. Can't mean that. Makes me uncomfortable. The Bible is a very uh, comfort-robbing book in some ways. It comes at us. It makes us uncomfortable, all in our own special ways. But let's not set a precedent of avoiding the passages that make us uncomfortable. That will never go well, no matter what it is. We want to be biblical. We don't want to impose our own interpretation because just the plain interpretation makes us uncomfortable, no matter what it is. We have to be careful not to call things bad that God calls good. Or to call something bad that can be potentially used in an evil way. If I picked up a stick and hopped on my bike, and the first person I saw, I whacked him in the head. Would you say, would you say, that bike is evil? That stick is evil. No more bikes. No more sticks. No, I'm the fool. I'm the problem. My heart is the problem. Not the bike, not the stick, 
Were they used in a bad way? Yeah, by a sinner. Doesn't make them bad. Take food. Is food a good thing? Can I get an amen? Good grief. Thank you. My goodness. Can it be used in a bad way? Absolutely. Um, I had a rough day, so I'm going to eat my feelings tonight. Okay? I'm not going to have one piece of pie. I'm going to have seven because, you know what, I'm stressed and I deserve it. Should we outlaw food? Should we never talk positively about food? That would be difficult for me because potentially it could be used in a bad way. Lots of things, tons of things. Every good thing can be used in a bad way that God has created. Um, Family. You know, for some of you, when I say the word family, that is not a happy word. That is a word that evokes tremendous pain. But we wouldn't then say we should have no more families or we should never talk about family in a positive way because some people have weaponized it for their own sinful desires. You need a biblical doctrine of creation and a biblical doctrine of sin. Those of you who are too liberal with alcohol, you have an overdeveloped doctrine of creation and an underdeveloped doctrine of sin. Those of you who are too conservative with the way you think about alcohol, you have an overdeveloped doctrine of sin and an underdeveloped doctrine of creation. We want to bring them into balance the way God does, the way the Bible does. I hold a strong view of creation and a strong view of sin, just like the Bible. So do you need to grow in seeing the good in God's creation? Do you need to grow in seeing the seriousness of sin? Where are you at? Here's an application question. When it comes to alcohol or any good thing, Are you more conservative than God? Are you more liberal than God? Where does God want to push you? Where does God want you to grow? Where does God want you to come into greater biblical balance? Because His way is always best. (laughs) Thinking His thoughts after Him is always best. It leads to life. Doesn't mean, now listen, doesn't mean you have to drink. Depending on your situation, it may be wise not to. It may be wise. You are free to abstain from a good thing if you do it in faith. Not out of fear, necessarily, but of faith. Just like someone is free to abstain from marriage and sex. You don't have to get married. Jesus didn't. He abstained. He chose freely to abstain. Mary shouldn't have been like, hey, hey, bud, clock's ticking. I want some grandkids. Can we get this show on the road? No, she shouldn't have done that. He's free to abstain. He chose to abstain from that. He he didn't from alcohol. The problem, guys, is when we start to judge each other. Uh, When the one who decides not to drink says, nobody should drink, this is bad, how could any Christian think this is good? Um... You know, you should just never even, never even go there because why would you get close to that line? That's wrong. 
just like the one who chooses to drink, can, should not say, dude, why are you so uptight? Like, loosen up. Have some fun. What are you, a legalist or something? That's wrong. I was talking with a friend, uh, who, a uh, godly man, who him and his family were thinking about joining a church, and they were liking the church, and it was good, and lined up on a lot of fronts, but then they got, they were reading the Constitution, and the Constitution said, to become a member of this church, you are not allowed to drink. It is wrong. And rightly, that was a major red flag for him. You don't have the authority to tell me that. Whether I choose to or not, that is between me and the Lord. That is my conscience. I have liberty to, to choose that. But you as the church, as people, cannot impose something as a rule as though it were God's law when it's not. Because I'll just tell you guys, if you ever bump into that, whether it's a person or a church, that is a major red flag. Because if they can tell you, I'm going to impose my rule as your rule, as though it was God's rule on one thing, they can do it on anything. Now, you may happen to agree more with that particular rule, but maybe the next one you don't. It's very serious when we start imposing our rules as God's rules or my rule on you as though it were God's. We don't have authority to do that, and it's a matter of the heart. How we handle any good thing of God is a matter of our heart. Um, it's a matter of worship. You can make all the rules in the world, all the rules you want. It can't change a heart. You can put all the safeguards on a computer or, you know, no alcohol in the house and we're living miles away from anywhere you can get it. And if somebody wants it <laughs> in their heart, they're going to find a way. So rules, regulations, this is not the kingdom. This is not the way. Parents, you need to find a time at an appropriate age to have a biblical conversation with your kids about alcohol. Being silent and simply being negative, don't drink. It's not going to serve them. You have to be level. You have to be balanced. You have to tell them the truth, what God says. What happens when they come to the Bible and they find these passages? They're like, well, that's weird because mom and dad told me something very different. It's very confusing. Trust God. Trust His Word. Trust that it's a matter of their heart. They're going to have to handle these things as they grow up, no matter what. They're going to have to choose. Equip them to understand it's good and it's dangerous with the wrong heart. And, and I'll just say, church, guys, this is where we have such an opportunity to glorify God, to live together with love to live together where we don't assert our rights, but we lay them down for a brother or a sister. We seek a better way than digging in on our own opinion. We want to be biblical. We want to be Christ-like. That is a powerful witness to the world. All of you, different families, backgrounds, convictions, experiences, living together with grace and understanding and love, whether it's with alcohol or anything else, powerful. True or false, the world is doing really well with living in harmony with other people who have different convictions. 
Man, you look at the internet, it's going great. We are really good at that. And yet the church can be so different. Here's my conviction. Here's my conviction. We love each other. And if my conviction is going to cause you to stumble, I will gladly lay that down for your sake. But I will also not criticize you or judge you for your conviction. That is powerful. Nobody else is like that. Guys, we have an opportunity to show the world what the kingdom of God is like, what Christ is like, through how we live and how we interact with these kind of things because they can be divisive. We don't have to let them be. We don't have to let it be. We don't have to fight over this stuff. We can prioritize, as the kingdom of God does, righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is what Jesus is teaching us with water into wine. I am the Son of God, and I have come to bring a different kind of kingdom. Not based on a bunch of rules and laws and regulations and judgments, but a life lived in response to lavish grace and lavish goodness. Amen? Father, we thank you for this amazing passage. It's so beautiful, interesting, encouraging, challenging. And Lord, um, the depth. We could come back again next week and and do it again and, and find different things to talk about. It's so, so much here. And so I pray, Lord, that we would apply it to our life. We would grow. We would be challenged in a good way because you love us. Lord, I have been challenged this week. I have been sharpened. Anything that I've said today, Father, that is not true or good or right, I pray that it would fall away. And anything that is true and biblical would stick and be used by your Holy Spirit. So we thank you for being with us. We thank you for uh, being patient with us as we work through these things. In Jesus' name, amen.